This is Thinking in Public, a program dedicated to intelligent conversation about frontline theological and cultural issues with the people who are shaping them. I'm Albert Moe, your host and president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. Edward Ayers combines some of the most interesting responsibilities. He has been president of the University of Richmond, but he is also one of the most published historians of American history. He's a scholar. He has also been involved in the academy. Indeed, he has served as president of the Organization of American Historians, completing his term in 2017-2018. President Barack Obama awarded him the National Humanities Medal in 2013. He's the author of some of the most interesting and informative books in American history, including a two-work project entitled The Valley of the Shadow. His newest book, The Thin Light of Freedom, The Civil War and Emancipation in the Heart of America, has received the Lincoln Prize from the Gilder Lehrman Institute and Gettysburg College. His earlier volume, In the Presence of Mine Enemies, Civil War in the Heart of America, the first volume of this Valley of the Shadow project, won the esteemed Bancroft Prize, and it also won the Beveridge Prize. A graduate of the University of Tennessee, he holds a Ph.D. from Yale University, and he is currently the Tucker Boatwright Professor of the Humanities at the University of Richmond, where he is also President Emeritus. Edward Ayers, welcome to Thinking in Public. Thanks very much. Glad to be with you. I have to tell you, I've been reading your works for a long time, and I really look forward to this conversation. And I think the first question I want to ask you is how you came up with the idea of the Valley of the Shadow Project. How how did you think of the conception of what would become these two books and an enormous life project? Yeah, thanks. It's uh, it was a long time ago now. Uh, it was the around 1990, in fact, um, and I was driving up I-81 in the Shenandoah Valley in Virginia and noticing just how beautiful it was, uh, and I saw a sign for uh, the new market battle uh, that had taken place there, and suddenly, and, and this is partly from my upbringing as a Southern Baptist, uh, in, all, in all candor, the 23rd Psalm <laughs> left, left to mind, that this beautiful valley had been the place of so much death and suffering, and yet now it just looks like the prettiest place in America, right? And how could it be that Americans could have brought this on in themselves? And part of the idea was that you look at the Shenandoah Valley, um, and you have the Mason-Dixon line cutting right across it, and you can't see it. You know, Pennsylvania, Maryland, Virginia all look the same. Uh, so how was it that Americans of the same religious denominations, uh, the same ethnicities, the same soil, the same climate, uh, could go to war in a matter of months and kill each other. So I, I began with the lack of obvious sources of conflict there, and, and it sounded like a good story to me, but it also sounded like uh, the 23rd Psalm. <laughs> so I'm, I'm a little amused sometimes when people don't really understand this and call it the Valley of the Shadows or the Shadow of the Valley or whatever. <laughs> no, right. it's the 23rd Psalm. You know what it means. But that's where it came from. And uh, so I reverse engineered all of the details of it from that one idea, is that we can maybe understand how people in Massachusetts and Mississippi might go to war, but how could people who were neighbors, who belonged to the same church organizations, uh, who were intermarrying, how could, how could they go to war? So that, that's where the, the project began with a question. 
And indeed, you uh, you had the twenty third Psalm printed in the uh, first volume of of this basically two volume work uh, in the presence of mine enemies. And uh, you're referring to the Great Valley there, the, the the Great Valley that runs all the way from Canada down, uh, you know, through the the eastern United States, and right. uh, and yet, and especially there where Virginia and Pennsylvania meet, uh, one nation went to war. And I, I I have to tell you that as much as I read in this area, I've rarely been as emotionally affected as by reading your two volumes. And I went back to read the first one as I was preparing to talk to you about the second one, and realized it was happening all over again. And uh, just given my own personal history and, uh, and, and my, uh, my own kind of visceral uh, acquaintance with these issues uh, at, at the remove of over a century, it, it's, it's hard to read. It had to be hard to write. Yeah, you know, I, I describe myself as a cheerful guy who gets up every day and thinks about the worst things in American history for a living. <laughs> and um, why would I do that? Uh, because we have to if we're going to move forward. You know, it is the idea with any sin or transgression that you have to face it uh, if you're going to transcend it. You have to repent for it if you're going to transcend it. And so I've tried to bring a voice of compassion for everybody in this story um, and just say, let's imagine that you're sitting in one of these places, uh, you know, so it's Augusta County, Virginia, where Stanton is, and Franklin County, Pennsylvania, where Chambersburg is, um, and you're not causing the Civil War, but you suddenly have to decide what do you believe in enough to die for, you know, wh- whose side are you on? And uh, so, I think, you know, I grew up in Upper East Tennessee, uh, in Kingsport, Tennessee, uh, and went to Andrew Johnson Elementary School. Wow. <laughs> there are not many of them, I think, in his hometown, in our town. Um, and so when I was growing up and my grandparents lived way up in the mountains of North Carolina, and I asked my grandfather one time, so why don't we talk about the Civil War? And he says, well, son, we shot each other. Um, and so growing up, I never had any sense of, you know, any kind of loyalty to the Confederacy or anything. And when we played war, we played World War II because that's what was on television, right? Um, and so I feel going into the war that we've been hindered by too much certainty and too many pat answers. Um, you know, I find out talking with people about this over the last 20 years that everybody has an answer if you say, well, what caused the Civil War? But it's usually just one or two words. And we know that that's inadequate, uh, but we keep returning to them, whatever they might be. And of course, you know, when I first conceived of this, you know, it was right after the Berlin Wall had fallen, and it seemed that maybe, you know, the world was going to get better. It never occurred to me that the Civil War and the issues that it touches upon would be this relevant as we get ready to head into the third decade of the 21st century. Um, so, I think that I it was hard to write because. I tried to imagine myself in the shoes of all these people. But on the other hand, it was gratifying to write because I finally I gave these people a chance to speak to us, to tell us what they had experienced and maybe we could learn something from it. So I felt myself something of a translator yeah. in this. And um, so I, I don't want to act like I was getting up and being miserable every day, um, but I did feel a sort of a moral burden with it. Um, and I thought only if we got down close to the ground could we understand what these people were feeling. 
Well, the idea of using these two counties, Augusta County, Virginia, and Franklin County, Pennsylvania, as, as symbolic polarities of north and south because of their proximity. I mean, they're basically just 200 miles distant. Um, right. you're, you're talking about people who thought themselves the same nation and then mm-hmm. thought themselves two different nations at war and then somehow – had to see themselves as one nation again. I think that is one of the greatest historical questions of, of human history. Uh, how in the world does that happen? And, and what I found so captivating in the way you approach this is that you're dealing with people who were really married to one another. They, they, they were part of a common culture, if ever there, there had been a common culture uh, there in the Great Valley. And, and all of a sudden, everything changed. Uh, I still find that at a distance. I, and and I know intellectually the reasons why, but but it still seems to me incomprehensible that brother could turn on brother in that sense. But it happened. Yeah. And what we have to understand is it happened one step at a time. Nobody thought, okay, now I turn against my brother, right? So they think, well, I'm going to vote to send the Yankees a, a lesson. They've elected, and the, the North says, we're going to vote for Lincoln to send these Southerners a lesson. And then they'll back down. And then, and people know the series of events, uh, people did not back down. People, they kept calling each other's bluff. I mean, there was no reason, objectively, materially, uh, for there to be the Civil War in 1860. Basically, Americans talked themselves into it. And uh, so, you know, Virginia is especially poignant in this regard, and Augusta County is especially poignant because Augusta County was the most unionist county in Virginia, and Virginia was the most unionist county in the South, uh, even though it was the largest slave state. Um, And so, you know, after the original uh, six deep South states secede, uh, Virginia says, listen, we're not going to do this. We're the mother of democracy in America. We're going to let every county send delegates to Richmond. We're going to talk this all through before we rush into all this. And people just don't realize it took months and months and months and many, many speeches before Virginia decided. And Virginia thought it was going to save the United States, that it was going to come in with its dual identity as the mother of the presidency and of, of the country and as the largest slave state and work it all out. And Pennsylvania had the same feeling. Here on the border, we'll figure it out. But what happens is that once people have declared that if they do this, then we'll do that, then they lock themselves into this uh, situation in which they find themselves crying to vote to leave the union, and then they find themselves fighting. So here's the thing. You know, I often tell young people when I'm talking with them that um, the story of the Civil War shows two things. One, that far worse things than we can imagine can happen. You know, that all the dangers are lurking within our culture all the time that can be you know, triggered into worse events than we can imagine. On the other hand, those same materials are there for better things than we can imagine. So in the case of the Civil War, you get both of them. You get the equivalent of 8 million Americans dying if it happened today, but you also get the immediate end of the largest, most powerful system of slavery in the modern world, something that no one thought was possible. In my own lifetime, I grew up in the segregated South and watched it dissolve in a matter of a few years, right. the legal part of it. So it's easy to be discouraged and to think that the future is only going to be more of what there is today. But the story uh, that we're talking about right now shows you that you better be very careful 
because you can talk yourselves into far more dangerous situations than you can imagine. On the other hand, don't give up. There are sources for good all around us. So I think that if, as you know, one reason it took me a thousand pages <laughs> to tell this story uh, is that that if you go step by step, and in many ways then battle by battle, people keep thinking, okay, this is it. Okay, we'll vote this way, then they'll step down. We'll form this army, then they'll stop. We'll beat them at this battle, then they'll quit. We'll pass this law, then they won't. But the thing is, is that once these tribal identities had been formed. Once people had to realize there's no middle way here. I'm either with all my neighbors here in Augusta County because Virginia has seceded. We voted against it until the very end, but now we're in the Confederacy. Sign me up. And that's the other thing that's so surprising is how people can switch their loyalties so quickly. Putting your two volumes together as as a project, you actually make an argument, and uh, I, I I don't know how self consciously consistent this was, but I will tell you as a as a critical reader, it's rather consistent. You give attention to the fact that this was a horrible war in which both sides really tried to break the will of the other. At one point in your second volume, you say the Civil War is really a comes down to a battle over territory, and and certainly that I understand that that argument at the end, but you also make the argument that, for instance. Uh, Lee's invasion of the North in 1863 was uh, was his attempt to break the will of the North to fight, to, to require negotiation and, and a settlement to recognize the Confederacy. Meanwhile, you've got uh, Sheridan in the Valley and, and, and others who are trying to do the very same thing, just to make the war too excruciating for the South to continue. Um you know, reading your book, I just have to say, as a Christian theologian, it just reminds me of the fact that we can never actually – uh, be as manipulative of others as we might like to think. <laughs> yeah, because they both failed. I mean, nobody's will was ever broken yeah. in the Civil War. Um, the main thing that happened um, is I, I, I tell people that there's no battle that's the turning point of the Civil War. There could always be another battle, but there could never be another election of 1864. So when Lee is invading Pennsylvania, he writes his wife that he wants to show the people of the North that the current administration cannot sustain them and that they will have to turn it out in the next election. So it's a little bit strange to think about. They're about the same distance from the 1864 election as we are from the 2020 election, right? right? And so he's looking ahead and thinking, if I can just walk right into the richest part of Pennsylvania and stay there for a while and take what I want and ship it back down to Virginia, after all that the Lincoln administration has mobilized and demanded and asked, surely they will elect somebody else who will sue for peace the following year. And I think that that's one thing that people tend not to realize. People tend to be either interested in military history or social history, political history. But I hope I showed you over those thousand pages that they're all the same thing, <laughs> uh, that they are oh, all indeed. tied together. Yeah. And so the biggest test then w- – would the Confederacy break the will of the North to support Abraham Lincoln in November of 1864? And I don't think people realize how close they came to doing so. A couple of facts that are kind of uh, like reading the front page of the paper now. If 80,000 men had voted differently in 1864, in particular parts of the South, George McClellan could have been president of the United States. Yeah. Lincoln persuaded exactly 1% of Northern Democrats to change their votes from Republican to Democrat. 
this is the greatest crisis of the nation, and you still had nearly half of white northern men who wouldn't support Abraham Lincoln. If people ask me what's the biggest surprise that I came across in the book, it's that. And so the positive thing about this is that Lincoln could have declared martial law or not had an election. He does it anyway, wins, and then as soon as he wins, then the war really does begin to, to wind down. But, but he didn't exactly even right. expect to win. He, he had no? even written a letter, a secret letter, to his cabinet members anticipating a loss, and he had to even come up with the idea of this new party this yeah. National Union Party, uh, to, uh, to, to be something of a, a, a coalition, he still thought it was going to fail. And that's where I realized Lee and, uh, and his strategy came closer than I think most Americans now recognize to breaking the will of the North. And, and the other point you make about the numbers here, I mean, as I added up, Lincoln had to be reelected by his own army. Yep, there's a large large element of truth to that. And I think the thing to realize is that uh, Lee uh, did prevent Virginia from falling to Grant almost to the edge of the election. Uh, You're referring before to Sheridan, who takes the valley finally in October, which ends up being perfectly positioned for the election because it allows to have a big hero, no October surprise that we talk about, and of course uh, Sherman taking Atlanta in September. So it's in August of 64 that Lincoln does not think he's going to be reelected, and then those two battles change things. And that's one reason as a historian, I let myself look at my phone more than I might just to see if things happen in the last hour that might change history because you never can tell when it's going to happen. In the beginning of your second volume, Thin Light of Freedom, you, you, you make a very interesting statement uh, about history and uh, the history of the Civil War in particular. You wrote, quote, our stories of the American Civil War and Reconstruction keep changing. The generation that fought the war celebrated its sacrifices and accomplishments by the end of World War I. Leading historians consider the Civil War a waste and a delusion. Scholars who lived through World War II argued that the war against slavery had been necessary, while those who experienced the Civil Rights Movement judged that Reconstruction had left the nation unredeemed. Well, where are we now in your judgment? That's a good question. You know, you might think that we had changed more than we thought. You know, I live in Charlottesville, um, and uh, which is strange for a place— to become an event. I say that now, and I know what people are thinking, right? Right. They're not thinking of Thomas Jefferson's University or Monticello. They're thinking of uh, torches around the Jefferson statue. Um, and I think that uh, as a recent um, you know, war of words between Joseph Biden and President Trump suggest, um, these fights over the symbols of the Civil War are still remarkably um, resonant with a lot of people. So, you know... It turns out if you, if you have look at polls and people and they ask what do you think caused the Civil War, forty uh, percent of people say states' rights, and that number is not very different between Northerners and Southerners. Though Westerners think it was slavery, um, and it's not very different between younger people and older people. So you might have thought, since no historian really in fifty years has argued that the Civil War was over anything other than slavery that that would have kind of percolated to the general population. But it doesn't. Uh, It hasn't. Uh, People still say, well, it it was either states' rights or it was just economics, by which they imagined that the industrial north had to go to war against the agrarian south for some reason they can't specify. So um, 
you know, there's been a book a week since the Civil War written about the Civil War, 54,000 books. Um, and yet the fact that here in 2019 we can't come to a greater consensus is just shows you how deeply these identities uh, still run. As this conversation makes very clear, history is an ongoing conversation. It can't be otherwise. It's made up of telling stories, and those stories are told by human beings about other human beings. Whether we recognize it or not, we're arguing over who we are right now, who we are as a nation, who we are as a civilization, who we are as a people, who we are as contemporaries. Because arguing about the past is never merely about the past. The further we might go, the more remote that story may seem from us. But for Americans talking about the Civil War, it's hard to imagine that it's not almost just as if it were yesterday. And furthermore, when you consider some of the current tensions in American life, just consider how many of those tensions are so deeply rooted in a conversation that turned into a debate, that turned into division, that turned into bloody war. The bloodiest war in American history. Well, I am a, a Southerner, and uh, so and, and our lives basically overlap chronologically. I'm just a little bit younger, but I, I experienced the very same pattern that you talked about. Uh, I, I too asked my uh, grandfather why why we didn't talk about the Civil War, which and he wouldn't call it the Civil War. Yeah, and you, you know that's when I realized this is uh, this this is the kind of thing. It, it was it, I, I think it would have been easier for him to talk about sex, which was incomprehensible. Uh, than to talk about the Civil War because it was just it was just untouchable, but uh, and and then of course I I'm, I'm a, a leader within the Southern Baptist Convention that, that that we bear the entire weight of all this history. I'm president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. Uh, two of our founders were uh, were chaplains uh, in the Civil War, and the the institutions famously tied uh, to this history, and, uh, and and I think every once in a while. An historian is capable of a of a very honest, clarifying sentence, and I want to say uh, I, I think you offer one of those sentences, which I think is self evidently true. Uh, when you say that for the North, I'm having to paraphrase you here, but you, you you argue about midway through the book that for the North, the war came to be about slavery, but for the South, it always had been about slavery. Yeah. And I, I think that's a that's a very difficult sentence to refute. It's clean. It's pristine. There it is. Well, thank you. I, I believe that's a better sentence than I've actually ever said, but I think I shall now adopt that as the version <laughs> of it that I have. Yeah. Uh, and I think this is the thing. In that 40% of people who uh, are skeptical that slavery was the cause of the Civil War, uh, some of them are skeptical because they don't think the North had the moral – fiber to go to war against slavery. And in that regard, they're right. <laughs> you know, the war right. did not begin to end slavery. And so, and then, but people then who want to defend the South and deny that it had anything to do with slavery have to overlook an enormous amount of evidence, including everything that the people who seceded actually said, right? But they look at the North's hypocrisy as they see it, as, an, as a reason why the South, therefore, could not have been fighting for slavery. One way I put this, it's an unbalanced equation. The North did not fight to end slavery, but the South did fight to perpetuate it. And uh, so I think, you know, and something I've been pointing out to people, 
they wonder, well, how can we possibly understand this? And I said, well, we already know how to understand this. It's called a story. You know, things start out one way and end up another. People grow and change. The trial of history shows some people to be something other than they thought they were. You know, so, you know, our kids love all these Harry Potter books and all these kinds of things, and, and they can read these incredibly complicated stories, and yet we don't think they can handle a story in which people change uh, in the American Civil War. So I think we've replaced the kind of narrative power that all of us know and love, and that's so effective in the Christian faith, with kind of fake sociology in which you have to have, well, it was this causal element against that causal element. I don't know how we lost our way on that, but uh, the fact is is that in our schools we teach these kind of hollow categories of cultural differences or of economic differences. The war was about whether or not slavery would be able to expand in the United States. That's what it was about, and nobody in 1816-61 would have disagreed with that statement. It's after the war that we begin telling a different kind of stories that, right. that removes that from the center. Yeah, and I think also as children, uh, and, and maybe as, uh, as human beings craving clarity and simplicity, we want to reduce everything to being good versus evil, and, yeah. uh, and, and that includes individuals. We want, to, we want some to wear white hats, some to wear black hats, and to stay that way. But the, the fact is that the more you come to know the human beings, the more difficult that becomes. And, and for me as a teenager, uh, the great intellectual problem for me in this regard is Abraham Lincoln. Um, yeah. Because I would read his words just as a teenager, very intellectually curious and deeply patriotic teenager. I, I, would, I, would, I would read Lincoln. And, uh, and by the way, I agree with Alan Gelzo that he's basically a secularized Calvinist uh, Mm-hmm. You know, he, he basically holds to this idea of providence and, and his, his understanding of morality, the brokenheartedness of his, of his second inaugural address. I just look at they saying, how can you not have sympathy for this man who is, uh, is, is carrying the weight of human history, it appears, upon his shoulders? Uh, and yet he could be very manipulative. He could, uh, he could basically uh, act extra-constitutionally. He, yeah. uh, he could be as human as any of the rest of us. And I think on the other side, you have people look at someone like Robert E. Lee and, uh, and fail to understand why uh, he was so popular in the North as well as the South. And I realize that, that, that there, during Reconstruction, there were, some, there were some bad reasons that was true, but there are also some, some good reasons it was true. Some of the men who had known him at West Point could not shake their affection for him. Well, you know, I've had many conversations on issues such as this, and I will tell you a couple of them and what I've said, and you disagree with me if you like. So I was on the Monument Avenue Commission for Richmond, and we were charged with interpreting all those monuments and, and what they meant and what should be done with them. And so we had hearings, you know, for months and months, and, and people would say, so Dr. Ayers, what do you think? And I'd say, well, I'm a civil servant right now. I tell you what, you tell me what you think and I'll argue with you, <laughs> right? And because I've, I'd heard every side of all this. And a free, very frequent um, argument that the Civil War was not about slavery was the fact that Stonewall Jackson taught his enslaved people to read and 
taught Sunday school for them. So pe- people very often would say, you know, well, Thomas Stonewall Jackson was a fine man. He couldn't have been fighting for slavery because he taught Sunday school for his enslaved people. So Stonewall Jackson was teaching uh, his enslaved people Sunday school. Therefore, he could not have been fighting for slavery. And I said, well, let's just think about it this way. What would have happened had he and Lee won? For, for forget about what they were like and, and what, what the causes of their motivations right. were. Just, let's just imagine what they want. You would have had the fourth richest economy in the world with its own nation state explicitly based on perpetual bondage with its intention clearly stated of expanding into Cuba and Central America. Okay, So the idea of personal motivation is not really – or even personal character – it's not really what's at issue here. It's what would have been the consequences if they had won. And I, I find that people just like to segment the story um, without thinking about consequences um, in, in that way. And so you can understand why people admired Robert E. Lee, uh, and you've heard President Trump just say in the last week that he does. Um, but to do so is a, an an ahistorical way of thinking in which we, we rip people out of the context in which they live. The flip side of that is, is passing moral judgment on people who are living in situations that we've never confronted. Sometimes I will say, I'm morally superior to every dead person there is. Right? <laughs> because right. I, I've, and, but we're, we know we're not. We're presented with different challenges. So the way I would turn around and say, well, let's imagine that these men are as good as you think they were. And they certainly were good Christians. Okay, um, and yet we look back on them today, and we see the consequences of their actions. What would people think about the things that we're doing today? What are the consequences of the things that we are doing? And so I think that to use them as a mirror uh, rather than as you know an icon um, is a more effective way to think about the, the people of the past. That does require thinking, though, and and it's 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 heartbreaking reading uh, your two volumes of this uh, uh, this Valley of the Shadow project. It, it's it was very difficult for me, and uh, and I might look at the monuments a bit differently than you. I might look at it the same. I I, I don't know, frankly. Uh, it is uh, th- th- this is not something that uh, I think should uh, should be a, a civilizational crisis point. Uh, partly because I think we have to tell the whole story. I'm, an, I, I'm a biblical Christian. I'm, I'm committed to an Augustinian worldview, which means an honest uh, understanding yeah. of human sin and depravity and the fact that uh, there's actually no one worthy of a monument. Uh, and, and, but every, every, the fact that someone put up a monument means that that's a part of the story we need at least to tell. Exactly, exactly. And, and there's more to tell. Exactly. And that, that, that's, we're in the same place on that, is that the problem with the monuments is they had stopped speaking to us. You know, they were just, they weren't telling any story uh, except the residue of, well, this is some previous generation that, that held up white supremacy as the law of the land, and this is left over from them, right? And so we need to explain all of those um, monuments, where they came from. Uh, I've been working really hard for the last six years on the new American Civil War Museum that's opening this weekend in Richmond. Um, And we're trying our very best to tell the story, just as you say, by showing all of the evidence and showing it unfolding and showing that all these personal decisions were required. 
And so, you know, ironically, you have to be arrogant enough to think that you could understand something like the Civil War, but humble enough to know you never can (laughs) if you're going to do this. So it's a kind of going back to that issue of getting up every day and working on this book. That was the issue. You know, how do I feel that I'm authorized in some ways to organize this evidence and tell this story? On the other hand, I'm simply not passing judgment on these people of the past. So, yeah, Karl Barth, when he wrote Theology, um, and uh, I wrote my dissertation on Barth, he, uh, he, he uh, had two different kinds of text. He had the, the main text and the minuscula. And uh, actually, the minuscula included all the, the smaller text, included all of his documentation and all the primary sources. And so I, I'm actually not Bardian. Uh, I'm, I'm classically uh, evangelical. But uh, it was Bard who made me think through that, uh, largely the minuscula, you know, because I had to deal with the primary sources. That's where I wanted to get. I wanted to see why, right. what, what's Bart looking at. And, uh, and, and, and frankly, that, that Augustine was one of the major figures he kept looking at. That's what drove me back. Well, oddly enough, you do the same thing. And, and in a yeah. way that I, I see almost no one else in uh, in modern history, uh, writing of history, that is, you uh, you use two different type fonts to make two different kinds of arguments. And I just want to tell you, you would have a very good little book if you just took all the italicized text and right. and put that into a small volume. Because as I see it, you're doing kind of a, a knowledge school, uh, you know, uh, mm-hmm. social history in the main text. But you do give the superstructure in the italics, and uh, I have to tell you, I, I, I love reading them both, but you had to have a strategy there. I'd love to hear you talk about it. Well, it's called, called writing 100 pages and looking at it and going, well, this isn't right, and starting all <laughs> over again. Uh, and, yeah, I, I came to realize I, if you, you know, you, if you love the minuscula, you'd love the Valley of the Shadow project, which we've not really described yet, but... Um, it's this website that has every piece of information about every person who lived in those two counties for from 1850 to 1870, and it's basically crazy. Uh, we had no idea when we began in the early 1990s what that would involve, transcribing 10,000 pages of newspapers and every census record and all this. This is long before PDF files existed, certainly long before Ancestry and all that. And the idea was, much like Martin, that you'd say, here's my story, here, click here, and here's all the evidence. You tell your own story. If you think that I'm not telling it fully, here's every letter, every diary, <laughs> every military report, you can, you can tell your own story. And so there is a kind of um, transparency that I was aiming for on that. But it also became clear that if I told you everything that was in that archive, and that's what the first hundred pages was, was I could tell you the weather every day. <laughs> you know, right. I could tell you the color of, of every major uh, eyes of every major cal- character. And I said, you know, okay, this isn't going to work. So how do I move the story forward and still have this kind of granular, very human story? And I ended up calling the italics voiceovers like in a, hmm. a TV show or a film. And that's how I see it. What I really care about is the story on the ground, but they couldn't see these things, but we can. Um, and so is juxtaposing of those two things. So, yeah, all of this required kind of inventing narrative strategies to do the multiple things I, I wanted to do. Um, and, you know, now I'm thinking, well, 
wouldn't it be in case there's anyone listening who has the capacity to uh, turn this into an HBO series? I'd be all up for that. (laughs) And uh, so, because I think in some ways it is a, it's a visual book too, don't you think? Oh, absolutely. It's kind of a narrative in that regard. So, but that, that was the idea uh, is that I would try to shift focal length, right? Uh, Right. Here's an up close and then, okay, now, we're going to have a luxury that nobody at the time had, which is to go up on Mount Olympus and be able to see all the things that were happening. So it's, it took me a long time to figure out how to do that. Fortunately, you know, so I, I wrote volume one, and then I was a, a university dean and then a college president. So I could not <laughs> get the energy and time uh, to write uh, volume two until I was finished with all that. I'm not sure I could have if I'd had to invent the form all over again. But fortunately, I had the, the Valley of the Shadow just sitting there, and I had my narrative form. So I was able to to turn off the email and quit going to the alumni events and <laughs> sit there and write that book in a year. Well, it, it is a remarkable achievement. And and you write elegantly. Uh, not, not every historian can or does. And as you just mentioned, it is pictorial. Uh, you, you do get a picture. I want to go back to one of the pictures, actually, that you mm-hmm. made me think a lot about. Uh, knowing the area very well, never having lived there, but growing up in the South and being in in, in the Valley a lot. Uh, you mentioned that if you take Pennsylvania and Franklin County, and then you take Augusta County in, in Virginia, uh, you said traveling through the Valley, it would have looked like one valley, one continuous system of valleys, at least. Uh, mountains on the left, mountains on the right, uh, shadows and light falling, uh, respectively. But then you said uh, it was different, too. And, and you said something I'd never seen before. You said that the farms were different. Yeah. And that was a clarifying insight. Uh, I- I explain what you meant that the farms were different in Pennsylvania versus Virginia. Yeah, it's a really surprising thing to discover. You know, we have all of this ridiculous amounts of data. And uh, we explored it all. And it turns out, really, that from the Mason-Dixon line all the way to Texas, uh, the average southern farm is about twice the size of the average northern farm. And um, the, the book I'm currently working on, I'm looking at this more intently. The one answer that, uh, is slavery, of course, something that we've not talked about as much now as I, yet as I'd like to. And yeah. uh, that in slavery, um, if you have even two or three people who are not your family to work, you can work a lot more land, right? right. And so the, the, lar- the more enslaved people planters own, the more land they own. And and so you would find the economies of scale. Whereas if you're the little house on the prairie in the north, there's no reason really to buy more land than you can handle. You don't have the money anyway, and there's, you can't really farm it. So, But it's also the case that, as people probably know, three-fourths of white Southerners did not own slaves. And yet they would also have their farms larger if they could. And having grown up in the South, you'll recognize this. We know what a farm is supposed to look like. You have the house in the middle, right? Right. <laughs> and then you have, and then you have you're, you're close to the uh, spring house. Uh, the barn's not too far away. Then you know there's a part of the farm, though, that's the woodlot. And I think we've maybe forgotten what it was like to have to 
have all the fuel that you burned <laughs> growing somewhere on your farm. Uh, you needed land, you know, to graze animals and so forth. So it's kind of a mystery uh, that I resent you asking me about. I don't have a better answer than this <laughs> about why culturally uh, Southerners pref- uh, would do whatever they could to have more land than they could actually farm because uh, the population density of the South is about half that of the North. So the flip side of that is that the farms are larger, but it's also the case that there are many fewer towns. And Mm. so people would, you know, uh, people who were very interested in spreading the gospel and establishing churches had to confront the fact in the South that you just didn't have the population density to sustain all the churches that you wanted. So the evangelical churches in the South were far more widely dispersed right. uh, than they than they should have been, you know, for maximum efficiency. Right. Um, and so it has all different kinds of consequences. But that's the the, the the difference that a line on the ground made. Ultimately, there's slavery on one side and not slavery on the other. You know, that ended up being the difference over which the nation divided itself. Now, there in Kentucky, you know, the joke goes that Kentucky joined the Confederacy after the Civil War, uh, sort of culturally, yeah. right? You right. Know? Uh, but the, the fact is that except for Kentucky, there's a very clear line of demarcation between a nation that was going to define itself around the security of slavery and another nation that wasn't. It wasn't a nation that was going to end slavery, as Lincoln said. It was illegal for him to do so. He did not have the constitutional right or any intention to end slavery. So it goes back to that same issue. And the big mystery in many ways for Southern history and for this episode is why would the three-fourths of people who didn't own slaves fight so doggedly for a new nation that was based on slavery? You know, uh, and I yeah. think that's and that's the problem that we have that, which is a productive problem. It keeps us from falling into pat answers about all these things. But in the same way that people would come up and tell me about Stonewall Jackson teaching Sunday school, people would come up and say, "Well, Dr. Ayers, the war couldn't have been about slavery. My ancestors didn't even own slaves, and you know, he died for the Confederacy." And the the, the statement I have about that is, um, he did not fight for slavery. He fought for a nation that was based on slavery. Yeah, uh, how how much can you distinguish that? I mean, this is a this is a tortuous question. I yeah. I, I mean, you asked the question, you know, why would three quarters of Southerners, yeah. uh, 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 or at least as represented in in the Confederate Army, uh, fight for the Confederacy in that light? How do you answer that question? Well, and it goes back to my first answer uh, that they they're doing it one step at a time. Okay, first of all. Uh, they do say that we're fighting against the abolitionist hordes, right? So, but they see that as not only attacking slavery, but attacking them, their moral virtue. And as you know, the churches are the, monk, are the first institutions to break. And why? It's because the southern churches felt northern attacks on slavery to be attacks on, on the morality, uh, the Christianity of their compatriots. Um, and so... The white Southerners felt that the North were hypocrites who were invading them for uh, just uh, greed uh, and resentment and didn't care anything about the black people. Um, and so white Southerners say, listen, let's all band together to defend our homes against these people. And once that starts happening, once your best friend has died, once you've lost your brother, yeah. you're fighting for him. 
right? Right. Um, and so that, you know, th- that's the thing you talked before about the failure to break will. Um, the longer the war went on, the more deeply committed non-slaveholding white Southerners in most of the South were to the the Confederacy. Now, there are parts, like where I'm from in East Tennessee and Western North Carolina, where they did not, where they said, enough of this, we quit. (laughs) We're we're deserting, we're walking away from this. But by and large, um, until the very last days, uh, the rates of desertion in the Confederacy were not particularly high. So I think it, it is the trial itself is a kind of crucible that welded Southerners to the Confederacy. The more they suffered, the more they believed in it. And then once the war is over and there's nothing at stake, then they don't want to give up this idea of the nation that might have been, that was based on virtue and self-sacrifice, that never had to levy taxes or ask anything else of you. You could just love the Confederacy because it was always in time, in the past, and perfect, and led by noble men. And it was never it was never a government except a government at war. So that we we have no idea how the Confederacy would have operated as a government except as a government at war because it was never at peace. That's right. That was its great benefit and its great deficit. Right to right. lead a government at war is to have people unified, um, and that's what was remarkable about that election of eighteen sixty four. That forty six percent of white northern men wouldn't vote for Lincoln when the nation was under assault. Right. That's the way to think about it, is that we think of the United States, the North being more unified, but the North in many ways was more divided than the white South. Because now we'll never know exactly if there had been an election, because one of the only changes that the Confederacy makes in the United States Constitution when it creates the Confederacy is to change the term of office of the president from four years to six. So there's never a presidential election. Jefferson Davis was not a popular man. We could imagine him being voted out of office if he'd come up in 1864. So it's hard to know. I mean, here's the thing. People are loyal to the people they fight with. People are loyal to an army. People are loyal to a general. That's why the, that's why, that's why the statues that we have are to the generals, right? And so by 1862 or three, people are loyal to the cause of the Confederacy, whatever its roots were. And you notice the Confederacy, once the war begins, never talks about defending slavery. It's at the moment that it's created that they're very explicit yeah. about it. Once the war begins, it's just to redeem the suffering. There, there are two things I want to, to, to raise with you. One, one uh-huh. is that, uh, as a theologian, I just have to say there's another dimension to this I think most historians miss. And, and that is the fact that theological liberalism had, uh, had already become such a driving energy in the North that the uh, northern denominations were largely discredited within the South on theological terms. And so the mm-hmm. arguments that they made uh, right. had had very little impact upon the South. So you, 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 it, it, it meant that uh, uh, the South could rightly, in this sense, you know, po- position itself and understand itself as the defense of Christian orthodoxy and, uh, and, and biblical revelation. And well, That's exactly right. That that's sorry, a big no. That's a big part of the story, though, and I I, I want to say the historians generally just miss it or disregard it. But that was a lot of the driving energy behind uh, many of the people that uh, that established this school and others. Well, and I take it very seriously. I think if, if the white Southerners said, "Listen, we are upholding the law of the Constitution 
and of the Bible. Show right. us anywhere in the Bible where it says that slavery is wrong. You can't, right? Show us anywhere in the Constitution where it says that slavery is wrong. You can't. Therefore, you are the apostates. You're the, you're the ones who are trying to change the law of God and of, of humans. And so there is no doubt that, you know, that white Southern Christians believed that they were fighting for the right uh, on theological uh, yeah, if I could interrupt and say it's a little bit more yeah. than that, because yeah. in the northern divinity schools and in, in, in the northern intellectual elites, they'd only uh, largely disregarded biblical revelation. And so, I, I mean, famously, Harvard, Yale, you can go down to Unitarian Harvard. So the South was not ready to be moved at all by northern liberals right. who all of a sudden decided to cite Scripture, which they saw as merely a human artifact in ways that uh, that, that uh, Orthodox Christians believe to be entirely illegitimate, and, and, and rightly right. so. So there was a talking past each other on uh, on theological grounds. Yeah, and I think that they're in the same way, and that fits into this larger story of how people were talking past each other on constitutional grounds. I mean, the, the Confederacy says we're fighting on entirely constitutional grounds, and it's not clear that they were not. I mean, it's not clear that secession was illegal. You know, and so, that, so th- right. that's the thing that's hard for people to uh, today, modern world, to understand that we have to take them seriously for what they believe, right? And if you do that, then some of the facile answers that we have uh, don't really work. But yeah, the the South would have seen themselves as fighting for what they believed had been uh, the best that had been handed to them by their faith and by their forefathers constitutionally, and it was the Northerners that were trying to um, undercut that in many ways. I had another experience as a young man, uh, a young Southerner, uh, trying to understand these things. I read many of the diaries and especially the letters by soldiers in the, the Union Army and in the Confederate Army. And uh, let, me, let me just suggest that th- that that presented a different tale than uh, than the one often argued about at the in the elite uh, uh, academic Guilds, mm-hmm. and it comes down to this: I gained the impression that the Northern soldier really did believe he was fighting in defense of the Union and to end slavery, just by the the way they wrote to their wives and to their mothers and fathers. Uh, and 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 it, I just noticed that there was very little, at least, evidence I found on the part of Southern soldiers. They really didn't focus so much on slavery. Uh, oh now, no, not at all. You know, they, they were focused upon defending what they saw as uh, as home. Mm-hmm. That's right, and that's why I use that phrase, they don't think they're fighting for slavery, they're fighting for a nation based on slavery, yeah. right? And so yeah. you never hear any episodes of Confederate soldiers charging into battle, long live slavery, right? They're not right. doing that. It's the very, in the same way that today, uh, the United States Army wouldn't say that it's fighting for capitalism, Right. I mean, that, that's not the way that we would imagine that that's what we're doing, right, we're, for democracy and freedom. But, you know, what, what underlies it? Well, yeah, okay, yeah, it, it is our belief in capitalism. So, you know, in the same ways that <clears throat> it's not illusion, it's not even trickery, uh, but it is the way nations work. And it's especially the way that armies work, in which you focus on the thing, what would unify us. Uh, there's a good. Uh, you find very little discussion of slavery uh, in all the letters of the soldiers. As a matter of fact, one 
famous historian said, if you took all the letters of Civil War soldiers from the North and South and mixed them up and threw them in the air, you wouldn't be able to put them back into the Confederate and Union boxes. Um, you know, that they're all talking about mother, and they're often talking about Jesus and God. And uh, so I think that, you know, historians continue to argue. You'll be shocked to learn that we continue to argue about anything. But uh, uh, a big debate now is, did white northern soldiers really care about the end of slavery? Um, and there are prominent historians who say, no, if you, if you look at uh, the, what they write, uh, sort of sort of unofficially, uh, that you don't find very much of that. By 1864, you will, right? But you're not going to find very much right. of it in 1861. So again, that's the power of story and of change um, and of recognizing that there's not like an essence of the Civil War that we can distill. You can only see it uh, as it's flowing. So if you go into a meeting of something like uh, the Organization of American Historians, of which you served as president uh, academic history being the whole purpose of the uh, of of the organization how do you morally handle the fact that you've got to deal with issues as heavy as moral guilt and the stain of slavery and the wrenching horror of a civil war uh, i just i say that as a as a theologian um i I think you can't avoid it, but I don't know how in the world history can deliver on it. Yeah, I think that um, my book is a little um, more, I don't know how how to put it, uh, moist (laughs) than than most, right? Uh, I, I, I wear my emotions closer to the surface. I think, you know, the history of if if we don't if we don't have the emotion hitting us we're not doing it right uh, i would say most of us feel like we're solving problems about the past um and which is one thing you know that journalistic historians don't really try to do you know the people who sell a lot of books mainly because they they sell biographies right in which you have the form is yep. already self evident um and i don't disdain that but and and sometimes people will say well what's the point of academic history well we're trying to solve problems. I think in my case, I was trying to figure out the Civil War, but the answer was you're, you can't figure it out unless you trace it almost day by day. So even though mine is a story, it's also an answer to the question. It's also trying to solve a problem. And uh, the, the thing is, of course, that we keep inventing problems for ourselves to solve, <laughs> which is some people don't really seem like they should be problems at all. But, you know, I'm a believer in the academic enterprise, uh, you know, certainly the teaching of it. I'm just finished grading my papers this semester, this morning. I'm feeling very virtuous this, at this moment. I bet. Um, <laughs> but um, the, you see that these issues of morality and what's at stake live better in the classroom than they do on the pages of an academic monograph. You know, so those issues are there. And frankly, I wrote these books maybe as an aid to somebody who's trying to teach this, and the student would read this quietly in the library and come to class kind of prepared to wrestle with these hard moral questions. You know, I wrote an essay back in 1998 called Worrying About the Civil War. And the point of it was that we don't worry about it anymore, I said at the time, that it felt like we'd solved the problem. And I, so the books that you've read are some ways my response to that 
And there's a lot to worry about. You know, the answers here aren't clear cut. Uh, it's not clear why any of these things that we take for granted actually had to unfold the way they did because they didn't. You know, and matter of fact, you, you'll yeah. see in volume two, I go all the way through Reconstruction and show how. That's right. Even then, <laughs> this is not preordained. So I would say that um, um, I believe in the academic enterprise. It can't fulfill all our emotional <laughs> and spiritual needs. It does. It does some things very well. And I don't, really don't think academic history has ever been more vital than it is right now. I don't think we've ever told more stories about more people using more inventive ways. Um, I, as it turns out, I just, as president of the Organization of American Historians, I just read the 100 books nominated for best first book. <laughs> and uh, so it was really quite the you know, core sample of the profession. And to see all the incredible work that's being done now on all kinds of issues is really heartening. So um, I'm Good. a big defender of it, but I also yeah. recognize that it doesn't do everything that we need the study of the past to do, which is why I'm very much invested in public history as well. Well, I really appreciate that answer. If I didn't believe in academic history, we wouldn't have had this conversation. But I'm That's very, right, very right. glad that we did. I, I, every reader will be indebted to you uh, for these two books and uh, and for uh, your intellect and your heart uh, invested in this project and a, a, a story that you tell and it becomes a part of the larger story and it's a story that's debated and the debate will go on but I want to say much I've appreciated this conversation uh, Edward Ayers thank you for joining me for thinking in public well thank you so much I'm honored to have a chance to talk with you and uh, it's rare to find someone who is sort of the ideal reader but that was you today so I, I'm very grateful One of the challenges in a conversation like this is taking a thousand pages in one project, two massive volumes, and trying to distill the most important portions of those books, the most important stories and arguments into a conversation, into a conversation that's an exchange of ideas, not only about what is argued, but what could be counter-argued, how history could have happened differently and how the history could have been told differently. We're indebted to Edward Ayers for his contribution to the telling of this story and for his latest book, but also for the rest of his books. It's a part of an ongoing conversation that no doubt Edward Ayers is having with himself, but he's sharing it with the public. And that's what one does, whether an academic historian or anyone else making an argument and writing a book. You are sharing your thinking out loud with the public. That's what makes me really glad to have this program and to have guests like Edward Ayers. And I had the experience of reading the book and then thinking about the book and also having a conversation with the author of the book. I don't discount the fact that that's a very rare privilege and it helps me to think. Hopefully it helps you to think too. And I want to thank you for joining me today for Thinking in Public. If you enjoyed today's episode of Thinking in Public, you'll find more than 100 of these conversations at albertmuller.com under the tab Thinking in Public. For more information on the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, go to sbts.edu. For information on Boyce College, go to boycecollege.com. Thank you for joining me today for Thinking in Public. Until next time, keep thinking. I'm Albert Muller.